by any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Eugene Perrier, here with Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And we are back with you here, continuing the show, turning our attentions to the case of Jeremy Hammond, which has some serious implications around a number of different things, including WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. We are very happy to be joined as we continue the show here by Patrick Hennessing, who is a writer, global affairs analyst, and the co-founder and executive editor of 21st Century Wire. Patrick, thank you so much for being with us here on the show. Uh, Great to be with you guys. Well, very happy to have you here. Jeremy Hammond, who is a imprisoned activist, has been called to testify before a grand jury in the Eastern District of Virginia. It looks like they are trying to compel him to testify against Julian Assange, although, of course, it's a secret uh, and we do not fully know. You know, maybe just let me start here, Patrick. I think there's probably a number of people who, unfortunately, I think, do not know who Jeremy Hammond is and the whole backstory of the the Stratfor leaks and uh, the FBI uh, uh, manipulations of Anonymous and so on and so forth. So maybe just to set the table, tell us a little bit about who Jeremy Hammond uh, is, in fact, and how he ended up in a situation of, of this sort. Well, uh, Jeremy Hammond's probably, in terms of hackers, a high-profile hackers go, I would say he's probably in the top sort of all-time, three all-time top hackers in U.S. history, most famously for what you noted, the Stratford leaks. But sort of more than that, uh, his group, which was kind of a branch off of Anonymous, and they had a group called Anti-Sec, and then part of a kind of a larger movement, Lil-Sec, they were, I would say, activists, yes, anti-establishment, anti-authoritarian, anti-tyranny, anti-imperialist. So definitely this falls, you know, their activity falls under the, the, the banner of ideological, I would say. So political, yes, absolutely, but not political in the partisan sense, uh, political uh, on a much broader sense. Uh, so uh, he was by, according to transcripts from the trial, he was definitely set up by an FBI informant. One of his close associates, actually, Cebu, was his handle. And there is there is evidence to suggest, strong evidence, in fact, that this was a, a kind of an entrapment situation whereby the hack was allowed to take place. But as so many things go in terms of the law in the United States, when you're under a federal indictment, your legal team has two choices. You know, basically one is fight the case, take it all the way and risk, you know, 30 years imprisonment under all sorts of trumped up extra charges that they've laid on, or you do a plea bargain. And Hammond's legal defense team made the choice to to do a plea bargain, basically. And so to serve lesser time, he would get out, you know, in a reasonable amount of time. He's actually due for early release as early as I believe, if I'm not mistaken, December 5th, because he voluntarily took part in a a drug rehabilitation program or an anti-drug abuse program in his minimum security facility, which is in Memphis, Tennessee. But he's back in the news. As we all know, uh, he's being compelled to testify, it looks like, to a grand jury in the Eastern District of Virginia. That's the National Security District. This is uh, probably the same grand jury that Chelsea Manning has 
they've tried to get Chelsea Manning to to testify and to give evidence to, but Manning's not giving state's evidence effectively to rat on Julian Assange in some way, shape, or form. And it, I don't know. This looks like uh, it's the next guy in the queue because they can't get Manning to cooperate. So they're going for what they feel is a former associate of Julian Assange, a source for WikiLeaks. That is Jeremy Hammond. So, I mean, I could, I don't know where to start with how many different violations of his rights uh, that this latest move by the federal government represents, but it's uh, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, no, I mean, it really is is stunning on so many different levels. I mean, the fact that they have potentially made it impossible for him to be released when he thought, which, you know, in and of itself is a tactic to try to coerce him, of course. And, you know, some similarities here, uh, Jeremy ultimately pled guilty to one count, I believe it was, on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, one of the same things that Assange is charged with, which is essentially, you know, a catch-all type of terminology to, to be able to you know, catch people when you can't actually catch them committing a crime. I mean, there's just a number of pieces to this. I mean, you know, one piece, as you mentioned, is is it seems that obviously, you know, the idea that Jeremy Hammond is even a, a prisoner is, is you know, ridiculous on so many different levels. I mean, I, even though I said he pled guilty to something, it's obviously that it was a – I think it's very obvious that it was a broad entrapment operation and they had – Obviously, foreknowledge of someone who had already compromised the strap for uh, peace. But anyway, long story short, there's also the issue, of course, his rights inside a prison, which, you know, people who filed his case know that's been a long running issue uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the way things have uh, been carried out there. And certainly through his own, uh, uh, you know, explication of this, we've seen a lot about the, you know, real challenges in the American prison system around people's human rights. And then third, I have to say, Patrick, you know, the fact that they've now brought him here, they've Chelsea Manning is not cooperating, I, I think it's almost, you know, I think there's very little to zero likelihood Jeremy Hammond will cooperate. But it seems to also imply, perhaps, a certain weakness in the government's case against Julian Assange. I mean, obviously, they want to get him on some sort of espionage act type charge, but it seems like they're not able to actually prove things that they want to prove, and thus they're putting the screws to those they view are, are, uh, as his allies and co-conspirators, in their words, of course. And so, you know, that's another aspect of this that I think is is certainly relevant. No, no, this is uh, this looks to me, just on its face, like it's an act of desperation by the federal government that's having difficulty trumping up a case against Julian Assange. So Manning hasn't turned federal state's evidence on Julian. Now they're going for Hammond and seeing if they can have a go with Hammond. And so if you look at what they've done to Manning, you know, levering fines on a daily basis that are going to rack up to hundreds of thousands of dollars by the time they decide to release Chelsea Manning. I mean, there's, there's, Excellent grounds to sue the federal government, definitely on the Manning case. When this is all said and done, I would I would hope that there's a legal, at least a pro bono team that would take up suing the federal government for what they've done to Manning, which is absolutely a violation of her constitutional rights. The same with Hammond. This is a violation of what they're doing in terms of trying to coerce Hammond, taking away the process of early release by dragging him to a situation, forcing him, coercing him to testify somehow to create some case against WikiLeaks, some case that, quite frankly, is not there. And we know it's not there because if they had any there there, they would have shown the there 10 years ago, okay, or sorry, nine years ago, whenever all the chances for discovery was during that case. And so it's a victimless crime by Hammond. Uh, Is it a crime? Is it entrapment? Yes, likely. 
It's ideological, it's political. So Jeremy Hammond's a prisoner of conscience. Chelsea Manning's a prisoner of conscience. Julian Assange is a prisoner of conscience. The government can't prove one way or the other that they harmed sources or methods or endangered the lives, practically endangered the lives of any agents in the field. All they have is hypotheticals. Lots of hypotheticals, lots of different scenarios. Maybe if, should have, could have, quite possibly, highly likely it might have happened, etc., etc. But they don't really have anything firm or solid to show in that department. But even if they did, even if they did, these people, especially Manning as a whistleblower, if what she put out was in the public interest, the same with Jeremy Hammond, the same with Julian Assange, they have some protections under U.S. law. Although Assange is not a U.S. citizen, but if he's dragged into the United States to face charges under the Espionage Act, he does have protections under the U.S. Constitution, as does Hammond and Manning. So it's very shaky ground for the federal government all the way around. This is an act of desperation. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. I think it's deeply shaky ground, and and I think it's— You know, I mean, the level of equivalency the government tries to put in a case like Jeremy Hammond's like, well, he did, and and he did in his statement after he pled guilty, say that he did work on the the Stratfor issue. Now, some of the other things that he's charged with, that's, you know, out there, and they can say whatever they want to say. But, I mean, you think about what was, was released in those WikiLeaks global intelligence files. And of course, you know, they have never said that Jeremy Hammond was their source or anything like that. That was the whole issue with Barrett Brown. But be that as it may, you know, looking at what was revealed in those files, you know, the the spying of corporations on activists by Stratfor, you know, for instance, uh, Dow Chemical were spying on the activists around the Bhopal disaster. 500,000 people injured, 4,000 almost, I think 3,700 people killed by the release of these, these toxic chemicals. You have, you know, issues of the perhaps government being involved, telling people to use Stratfor to spy on people and to try to create private networks to defame and smear and disrupt, you know, activists who were raising serious questions about the practices of these businesses that were harming the world, harming their own customers, harming consumers. And, and the idea that there's some sort of like equivalency here between the Jerry Ham- Jeremy Hammonds of the world who are in prison and the you know information that was revealed due to, in part at least, according to his own admission, some of his own activities. And none of those people, by and large, faced any sort of legal action. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, one person is tasked as a criminal and, you know, major corporations are allowed to, you know, have it revealed how they're going out of their way to violate the rights of citizens and destroy social justice movements or whatever it may be. And I don't know. I mean, it's a general point, really less than a question, but it just feels like wrapped up in so much of this WikiLeaks piece, the Chelsea Manning situation, this Jeremy Hammond piece, the broader issue of, of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks being targeted in general, that there's this attempt to create a criminality around those who have gone out of their way to reveal the depths of true criminality by many of the, the most elite in the world. Yeah, and it, by extension, what what was disclosed in WikiLeaks' document dumps, what Manning helped to bring to the public for, nobody has been charged, nobody has been tried with war crimes, war crimes on camera, prima facie war crimes. There's no debate about what took place there. Everybody saw it. 
and not even a rap on the knuckles, as far as I'm aware, of any of the officers involved, any of the COs, right up the chain of command to the, the defense uh, minister or the head of the Department of Defense or Donald Rumsfeld, whoever was in charge. I'm not. I'm not sure who was in charge during that time. But that was a policy. There was a, there were U.S. policy uh, that was handed down. Uh, all the way down the chain of command in Iraq to deal with uh, or to react with it with a hard uh, and uncompromising manner. If any IEDs went off around this Baghdad area, that they were going to come down like a ton of bricks on anything or any local that they deemed might be a potential threat. That was policy. And that's been that's been proven by different people over the years, different journalists, different whistleblowers. Okay, so the crimes were committed, and the, and now the the people who expose the crimes, as you said, Gene, as you said, the people who expose the crimes are the ones that are doing uh, hard time in the federal penitentiary. Uh, it's unbelievable. It's the illusion of justice in the United States. It's the illusion of due process. It's the security state closing ranks. And in this case with Hammond, closing ranks for private corporations, uh, the privatization of intelligence, the privatization of intelligence gathering of what we would call privatized command structures that helps to deal with this problem of accountability within public agencies, within public departments. And this is always something either through Blackwater or in this case, Stratford, that the I, I think was very much in vogue in the early 2000s or even before. And this is something the government wants to protect Everybody wants to protect these networks as much as possible. These activists have done a good job exposing them and bringing stuff to the public eye that absolutely is in the public interest. There's no debate whether it's in the public interest. Not It shouldn't be on the public side, but on the government side, there's debate, which tells you a lot about where the government's at right now in terms of its uh, ethics and moral framework. Yeah, no, I think that that's very much the appropriate way to look at it, sort of an ethics, morality sort of issue here and not this attempt to use legal niceties to hide the the reality of what they're doing. I mean, as I always point out to people, you know, of course, slavery was once legal as well. So just because they're able to prove someone broke a law doesn't necessarily mean in the greater moral scheme of things they've actually done anything wrong, whether or not they've broken that law or not is a whole other issue. But, I mean, you know, it also seems to me to speak to, I mean, the idea that 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 Jeremy could have to do two extra years, not really extra, but two more years in prison I mean, just speaks to the sort of role, and this is something anyone who follows the criminal legal system in America knows prosecutors do on a regular basis, but using prisons in and of themselves as institutions of torture and the idea of prolonged imprisonment that, you know, who knows exactly when you may get out and the the back and forth over, you know, whether or not you get out now, whether you'll get out later, as in and of itself a coercive mechanism, really a form of torture, even though it's not actually uh, looked at in that way. And, and I think that obviously we can see that that's being done against Chelsea Manning, and to a greater extent, also Julian Assange. I mean, even though he's in the UK, it's sort of the red thread running uh, through all of this is the the use of, of of confinement basically as almost a form of torture in and of itself to get individuals to reveal what they want them to reveal, whether it's true or not. It's beyond that. It's, it, everything you said is absolutely true, and it's absolutely abhorrent. But what the main objective is of of the state or whichever state is is holding any of these individuals the main objective is to make an example out of them the main objective is to show that this is what's going to happen to you if you engage in any activism any hacktivism you you are doing anything that could threaten the national security state this is how we're going to deal with you this is what you can expect. You're going to waste away slowly in, in our facilities and in our legal system. Your support 
is going to fall away, it's going to shed, and then you're going to be left with no support, no money. Uh, you're going to lose X amount of years of your life. Uh, so that's a message out to everybody uh, as to you know what, what awaits you. Or in, in Ed Snowden's case, you're going to be self-exiled in Russia, never to be able to return to your country of birth, most likely. So this is what I think that's the overriding objective of the U.S. state, of the British state, of the, of the NATO state, is to send that message out. And I think it's effective. I think it's effective. I also think in the case of Snowden, it's a separate conversation, but I thought they've also put a chilling effect on people self-policing their own conversations on social media, on email, in public, uh, just general discourse. There's definitely a chilling effect that's been put down as a result of some of these stories that we're, we're covering right here. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a very well taken point. And I mean, you know, one other area that I'm also concerned about here in this context is, you know, what we're seeing around the issue of quote unquote domestic terrorism. I mean, obviously, I'm someone who has raised the issue quite a bit about the need to take much more seriously the threat of, you know, white supremacist, right wing, terroristic type groups. But it seems like we're almost in a post 9-11 atmosphere now where under the guise of, you know, protecting marginalized communities extraordinarily broad bills and things like that are being proposed by the Adam Schiff's of the world and others in terms of giving a huge amount more power to the FBI, the Justice Department, uh, to really ultimately criminalize dissent, just smuggling it in by saying, oh, we're doing it to take out Nazis. But ultimately, I think we know who the main targets of these things will be. But it does feel like, you know, we're in a, in a, in a very dangerous time, an inflection point right now for the attempt of those who are doing the most damage to really solidify their sort of juridical ability to do, I mean, essentially whatever they want to whomever they want and giving them a fig leaf in which to do it whenever they decide to make those moves. Yeah, so so if you if you want to look at it like a gestalt or a progression, it would start with you know the Patriot Acts one and two, uh, starting with you know this was to fight terrorism. So you see terrorism a lot in the language of these sort of government security initiatives or laws or bills. So then terrorism becomes extremist. It gets downgraded eventually to extremist, so it becomes more arbitrary, uh, a wider berth, a wider catch. And then extremist becomes um, activist. It becomes dissenter. It becomes controversial from extremist content to controversial content. And then in terms of the national security side, first it's for national security interests. Now it's been downgraded to national interests. And let me tell you, how difficult is it to define national interests? And what is national interest? Anything is in national interest. You talk corporate competition is national interest. So everything then falls under national security effectively because they've they've widened it, relaxed it, they've extended it. It's the most elastic of definitions, and that's exactly what they're attempting to do. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to have to leave it there on that note, Patrick, but I do appreciate you being willing to join us here on the show. As always, help us sort through this. We're going to go to a break. By any means necessary, Radio Sputnik, Washington, D.C. We'll be back. Stay with us. By any means necessary. 